Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and our podcast is sponsored by the Indiana Women's Action Movement. Uh, today, we are going to be speaking about all things criminal justice uh, reform and equity uh, with our very special guest, um, Marion County Prosecutor Ryan Mears. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. There's just so much to talk about, and I'm really excited about having this conversation with you. It, it's great to be on here, and I appreciate all of your work that uh, you've done on behalf of Democrats around the state. So it's a pleasure to be on here and look forward to the conversation. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of work, but, you know, we are we're passionate and we are not giving up. So, OK, so I have a whole list of things that I want to talk about. Um, and the first one, of course, is what you're most famous for. Uh, and that is that uh, after becoming elected uh, in the I'm not sure what year, several years ago, um, you immediately announced that you would not be prosecuting uh, uh, possession of small amounts of marijuana. And, um, and I thought that was a very bold, uh, you know, policy and a bold assertion. And, and so far it's held up, but I know that at least two years now, um, the Republican supermajority in the state legislature has, uh, proposed a bill that is, says that the attorney general can appoint a special prosecutor if the local prosecutor does not agree to prosecute all crimes. Um, is that correct? Am I saying that right? Yeah, more, more or less. Okay. And so, um, but that has not succeeded. And I don't know, it, it, does it look like it's going to succeed this time? It, it's passed the Senate, so now it's over in the House and it's in the, in the hands of the House now to, to see what they're going to do with that bill. All right. So, so the implications are that, uh, that um, Todd Rokita, our clown attorney general, would um, appoint another attorney to uh, represent the state and, uh, and, and prosecute these crimes. Uh, and, but there's probably more. And so, and I'm sure that you have thought this through. So what are the other consequences of such a bill? Well, I hope the first one that Republicans remember is that uh, there were many sheriffs and there are many prosecutors around the country who said that they were not going to enforce Governor Holcomb's emergency mandate as it related to the, the pandemic. And they said, hey, we're not going to prosecute people for violating that, uh, which was a B misdemeanor. And so now the uh, attorney general uh, and the court involved would have the authority to appoint another prosecutor, a special prosecutor to come in and prosecute those types of offenses. And, you know, I think the prosecutors and sheriffs in those counties thought to themselves that this is not what my community needs right now. This is not how we should direct our resources, which is the exact same thing that I thought for Marion County as it related to the issue of simple possession of marijuana. Uh, there are a number of things that uh, I'm concerned about as prosecutor. Uh, I want to make sure that we're devoting as many resources as possible towards violent crime. Whether or not someone decides to light up a joint in their backyard is not something that I'm overly concerned about, nor do I think it requires the involvement of the criminal justice system as a whole. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, I, and I'm sure there are many, you know, things we have just not thought of that, um, that uh, consequences uh, beyond what you said, which is, you know, of course, an unintended and significant consequence. <laughs> this yeah. is crazy. So I was going to um, uh, ask you about that. Um, and that um, so, it, so, and I, so I presume then you are, um, in favor of decriminalizing, um, yeah, possession. I, I, absolutely. And I'm in favor of, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you look at marijuana usage rates and then who ends up in the criminal justice system across races, there's no question that our marijuana laws as they are currently enforced disproportionately impact people of color. And it's unfortunate, but too many of the pending marijuana cases involve people of color. 
and you know the equal protection clause says very clearly that the law needs to apply equally to everyone and in marijuana enforcement in particular it does not and so i think that's a really intelligent reason to move forward i think the second part of it is just look at the costs associated with prosecuting any criminal case uh, but especially a possession of marijuana case. We're talking about thousands of dollars uh, from the prosecutor's office, thousands of dollars from the public de defender agency, thousands of dollars from the court, thousands of dollars from the sheriff's office, and thousands of dollars in lost revenue in unproductive hours because people are leaving work uh, and coming to the house for marijuana. And, and so the economic consequences of continuing to prosecute marijuana are, are extraordinary. And so it just makes sense for all of those reasons to allow Hoosiers that opportunity, Hoosiers who are adults to make that decision as to whether or not they think it's appropriate for them to use marijuana or not. And there's a lot of people who use marijuana for medical reasons because they have healthcare reasons. Uh, maybe they have some mental health issues. I know the veteran population has been very vocal in their support of my decision because of some of the challenges that they face. And so it would be nice if we could just vote this issue up or down. Hey, are we for or against marijuana in the Indiana legislature? But of course, they don't want to take on that challenge. Yeah, it's surprising. Um, it's shocking that this isn't happening. I mean, there is bipartisan support uh, for at least for decriminalization of small amounts. So uh, I'm not sure, you know, there's some some block somewhere that's happening. I mean, even the governor has come out in favor of decriminalizing small amounts of marijuana. So I'm not sure uh, what the problem is. So, but I do want to pick up on the topic of incarceration. So, um, and, it, and it's my understanding that Indiana has um, a higher incarceration rate than other states. Is that, is that correct? Yes, okay. yeah, in terms of percentage, yes. Right, and, um, and can I ask you um, how many, and maybe um, this may be a, you know unfair question, but um, do you know how many states allow privately owned and operated um, prisons, um, you know, for-profit uh, prisons? I, I, I don't know the number, but it's too many. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's not not a good system when uh, you know the state uh, guarantees payment for you know for a certain amount of uh, people to be there, whether or not they're there, first of all, but then um, is able to lobby to increase um, sentencing and crimes, uh, crime statutes uh, that benefit them financially um, by putting more people in prison. So. I'm sorry. So I, so anyway, so yes, go ahead and comment on that. I'm like, I've got so many things going on here. Yeah. And, and, and I just wanted to say, you know, I, I got to give a lot of credit to our city County council uh, in particular, president Bob Ossley. One of the things that they passed an ordinance that you couldn't have privately held uh, detention facilities here in Marion County. So we don't have those anymore. They've closed. They're all government operated and, and owned and we don't have a private jail anymore. And I think that sends an important message to the, uh, to the community. This should not be a for-profit enterprise. No one should be profiting off of someone else's misery. And uh, I was really pleased to see the city county council take that step to, to ban uh, those, those prisons. That's excellent. Any other counties that are doing that? I'm just aware of Marion County, but hopefully more, more counties will join us. That's great. We'll have to take that up, take up that cause and get more counties to do that. So, and then of course, on that same topic, um, the bill that's floating around that's um, banning um, uh, uh, nonprofits from making bail for nonviolent offenders. Um, it's interesting because of course it doesn't, it doesn't do anything about, uh, you know, for-profit, um, you know, bail 
uh, you know, uh, I'm afraid I've lost the name of the word, but you know, the people bail you out for yeah, money. Yeah. There you go, bail bondsmen, right? So that's okay, um, but not this, not nonprofits. Um, so, Ken, what are your what are your feelings about that bill? Well, you know, I, I think it's we're, we're once again, I think we're getting distracted from from the real issue, and and the real issue is we don't want people sitting in jail uh, on low level nonviolent offenses because they don't have money. The the someone's wealth should not uh, factor into the equation in terms of are we going to release this person or not. We're either concerned that this person poses a threat to themselves or the community as a whole, or we're not. That should be what the analysis is. Uh, and the reality is, you know, we also need to do a better job uh, on the front end of making sure that more people are not even uh, breaking the threshold of the jail because we need to take a better advantage. We need to make sure that more people are getting uh, a summons issued as opposed to being arrested and booked and then getting uh, a bail imposed on them. Uh, Representative Cherish Pryor every year proposes a summons law that would make it mandatory on these nonviolent uh, misdemeanor offenses. We don't need to arrest someone from a theft from Walmart. We don't need to arrest someone for possession of paraphernalia. Give them a summons and tell them to come back in a couple of weeks, come to court. Uh, that fulfills our, our purpose. We've eliminated the, the problem, which is the merchandise has been returned to Walmart. We've taken the paraphernalia out of the person's hands. We don't necessarily need to now arrest that person uh, and compound the situation that, that's, that's going on uh, here in uh, the state of Indiana. So I think that's another area where we could make our criminal justice system more equitable. Absolutely. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, what it means to be sitting in county jail awaiting trial. So not guilty, you know, not proven guilty, not convicted, um, but still in jail and waiting there for your trial or, uh, you, know, a, um, you know, an agreement to be finalized. Um, and some people for, I mean, more than 12 months um, sitting in county jail, which by the way, is way worse than prison. Uh, just terrible. And in fact, I remember when I was practicing um, a young woman who had a a baby, you know, got arrested for shoplifting, I think a gallon of milk or something and uh, was in jail. <laughs> it was just in incredible that this woman was, you know, separated from her baby <laughs> because she had stolen this and was sitting there in jail trying to find money for bail. It was ridiculous. Just ridiculous. And, and, and I think that speaks to, you know, the, the legislature, the, the bail process currently that we have doesn't always produce outcomes that ultimately benefit the community. And I think we all recognize that. But instead of addressing that challenge and that aspect of it, the, the legislature in, instead is going in different directions that I don't think ultimately is going to best serve the, the needs of, of our community. You know, we right now we kind of have the worst of both worlds. We people who don't have any money on low level nonviolent offenses end up being in jail. And the people who we are, you know, concerned because they do pose a threat to our community, uh, those individuals aren't always being held. And, and so there has to be a more common sense middle ground that we can find. It would be nice if the legislature could help us there, but instead we're worried about uh, non-compliant prosecutors and uh, handgun laws. Right, right, right. Okay, great. So, all right. So there's just so many things to talk about. I don't even know which ones to pick up here. So the other bills that are floating around is um, the, I guess it's funding, right? To, uh, to send more police into designated high crime areas. And this one seems targeted at Marion County as well, right? Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. No question. So, I mean, what's the point? It's just, to, I, I don't know. Are you opposed to this bill? Or are you supporting it? You know, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I hope people do is let's talk to people in these communities and ask them what they want. 
and, and oftentimes what makes people feel safe is, is not the idea that they have police around, but the, the area is well lit, that people take care of their lawns, that everybody's neighbors are nice to them. Uh, those are the things that make people feel safe in their community. Uh, having investments in their community, so there are economic opportunities. Uh, that's the sense that I get when I talk to people. And so, you know, I, I really hope the legislature has those conversations with the members of these communities that, that have been so dramatically impacted. You know, they don't want absentee landlords that allow houses to, to go into ruin. They don't like uh, abandoned lots. They don't like uh, renters who are predatory. Uh, those are the things that I hear from the community that, that they think are, are more important in, in areas where, you know, maybe if we devoted more, more resources to those areas, uh, I think it absolutely has an impact on on crime because, you know, when people love the community that they live in, they take care of that community. Uh, but too oftentimes, you know, we have too many areas where I think people are looking for uh, that investment and those opportunities and government always doesn't do a good job of making sure that those opportunities are spread out evenly amongst all the people in our community. I, you know, I really, um, I, you know, I'm just, I'm really so impressed with your very, you know, clear cut approach uh, to criminal justice. I really, I, I really appreciate that. So um, uh, those are the big ones. So the other, I, and I know you're doing some other programs, and I want to talk to you about your, um, your diversion program for um, nonviolent juvenile, uh, uh, you know, I don't I hate, do I have to call them criminals? I, kids are, who are convicted of some nonviolent crime. Yeah, so and, and let's just call them. Yeah, let's just call them who they are. They're kids. Um, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, my, my thought process was this, you know, when I talk to kids or when I talk to young people in our community, the biggest thing that I see is kids need hope and they need opportunity, but you have to provide them with a meaningful opportunity. And so what we did is we formed a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club, where when we have low level nonviolent offenses, instead of engaging in the traditional prosecutor model, uh, where we're you know, potentially going to stigmatize someone as being in the system or now stigmatize them with a conviction. Let's say instead of spending that money to prosecute them, we're going to spend that money to invest in you. We're going to spend that money to send you to a safe place to be around positive adult role models, to be in a place where you can safely access the, the Internet, which is now more important than ever because of the pandemic, uh, and give kids a safe space to learn and go to after school. And not only that, they're also have an opportunity to get hooked up with a social worker to help identify, okay, what are the, the root causes of, of some of the issues and why are we seeing these kids? Uh, and the program's really been uh, tremendously successful. And I want kids to hopefully take away from that, number one, the positive experience at the Boys and Girls Club, but also say, hey, people are trying to help me out. People are trying to invest in me. People are trying to put me in a better position. Uh, because what we found from working with these kids is oftentimes the kids aren't the problem. They're just in really difficult situations and circumstances. Uh, there's oftentimes mental uh, illness issues inside the home. There's addiction issues inside the home. There's food insecurity inside the home. Uh, sometimes they don't have a home to go to. And so we have young people who are dealing with these very adult issues. And then when they act out on a nonviolent offense, is our response to, to punish someone who's already down? Or do we try to extend our hand to try to help that person up? And that's really what we're trying to do. And so far we've had produced some pretty good results and we're hopeful that we'll be able to continue to expand this program and touch as many young people as possible. Yeah, so do you have any statistics on that? How many children are participating in the program? 
Yeah, so right now we have 18 kids who are actively participating uh, in the program. We've had over 100 referrals since we've uh, announced the program. Uh, the vast majority of the offenses that we get are theft cases. So we're talking misdemeanor theft uh, cases where almost every single time the merchandise has been returned to the property owner. Uh, in almost all of these circumstances, it's also top 100 retailers. So we're talking about thefts from Walmart, not thefts from uh, another person. And, you know, when we look at, at, at these kids, you know, a, again, they have to come overcome and deal with a lot of different issues. Uh, and so it's been really cool to kind of empower them and give them that opportunity uh, to go to a safe, positive place. Um, you know, they're, uh, of the 100 that we've referred to, not everyone has taken advantage of it and utilized it as much as we'd like, uh, but a lot of kids have. And, you know, when we look at our traditional method of prosecution, uh, the rate of recidivism is way too high amongst juveniles. And so we have to change the game and we have to say, okay, how can we be more intelligent about our approach to kids? And we're hopeful that we won't see these kids again. Only time will tell, but we're hopeful that the kids that go through this program, we won't see them again in our system. Uh, and if we do that, that's a win for everybody. That's awesome. I, I, uh, and I have to share with you, I was a, a teen court judge for I don't know, many years, 20 years or something. And, um, and again, another terrific diversionary program for juveniles. And I know at least in our local program, I mean, the recidivism was like zero. Um, you know, when uh, students went through this whole, it was, a, so it's a, you know, it's a peer-based court system for sentencing only. Um, so the, you know, the juvenile has to admit uh, guilt uh, and then they're sentenced through this teen court program. Um, and uh, the students run everything. They're the attorneys and they are, um, you know, they're the jury and the bailiff and all of that. And then, you know, attorneys like me would be the judges and, um, and they were great programs. So I, so I wonder if, um, that program that you're talking about, your partnership with the Boys and Girls Club, is that happening in any other county? You know, I think we're the first ones to try it out. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the teen court model is also something that we do here in Marion County, and it's been tremendously successful. Uh, and, and again, I think that the root issue here is that that direct engagement with kids. How can we directly impact kids and talk to them in, in a meaningful way? but then also give them a meaningful opportunity. And so we're hopeful other people will take a look at the success that we've had uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, extend this idea uh, and build upon some of the success that we've had here in Marion County. So, yeah. And um, yeah, and it probably depends too on each um, county's uh, strength of their Boys and Girls Club. I know, you know, some are just more, you know, robust than others. And so that probably makes a difference. But uh, certainly Boys and Girls Clubs are committed to working with those same kids, though you know those kids from the neighborhood who may or may not end up, um, you know, stealing something from Walmart. Um, so it's not like it's out of their bailiwick uh, to work with kids like that. Yeah, and, and one of the things that drew us to the Boys and Girls Club too is that they were at least in Marion County they were able to provide transportation, you know, because that's such a barrier for so many kids that a lot of times mm -hmm. they rely on public transportation, uh, you know parents are working and so getting them to and from a particular location can be a challenge and the boys and girls club at least in marion county is able to help bridge that transportation gap uh which is a great uh barrier reducer right there in terms of getting kids inside the club that's great uh, those are great programs just wonderful i love to hear all that great stuff okay so now i want to talk to you about some other uh some other issues there's um two at least two years now um bills have been introduced to change the rape statute and, and it's to uh, right now, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in order to prosecute rape, you have to show physical violence that you've been physically you know, injured. 
um, or that there was a threat of physical danger uh, or physical injury, um, or that you know there was uh, incapacitation um, of the victim. Uh, is that correct? Am I doing okay? Yes. Yep. You're you're doing well. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. So, um, but um, but that leaves a lot of um, cases unable to be prosecuted. So, can you explain that part uh, for us? Yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised that our law doesn't talk about the word consent and do you have to have consent? And unfortunately, that's that's a real challenge sometimes as it relates to these these rape cases in terms of uh, what is the the person saying to let the person know that uh, there, there's not this consent or this lack of consent. And so a lot of times it comes down to that issue of uh, force or the threat of force. Uh, and, and so there's really two big gaps in our current rape statute. It's, it's for consent. We need to define consent and make it clear that you have to have consent, uh, which I hope seems, you know, like common sense to everybody who's, who's listening to this. Uh, you know, when, when you tell most people that in the community, they're like, you don't have to have consent. I'm like, well, it's not in the, it's not in the statute. Uh, so adding that. And then the other part is fraud. You know, uh, there's sometimes, you know, people can be induced under false pre pretenses. And so that's also uh, a part of the statute that that uh, is in the proposed bill. And again, you know, it, it closes that loophole, it protects uh, the people involved, it respects everybody's dignity. And, you know, now we don't have to have conversations about what level of force, what did that force look like, and how big of a fight did you put up, uh, which is oftentimes now where, you know, the kind of the battleground on these rape cases take place. Hmm. So can you Tell me, like, uh, of rapes reported, how many are able to be prosecuted? You know, I don't have an exact uh, statistic on that, um, but you know, it's 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 the it, those are always challenging cases, and, and a lot of times because the 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 issue is um, there's you know people have different reasons for coming forward or not coming forward, and and I think the the thing that's challenging for us as an agency is we know that rapes are underreported uh, and we want to encourage as many people to come forward as possible. And we understand what we're doing is we're asking people to talk about literally the worst experience of their life. And then you're gonna have a detective or a prosecutor or whoever's involved in the investigation kind of poke holes in what you're saying. Not because anybody's being a bad person, but we're just trying to figure out, is this a case that we can make? And so what this statute does is I think it you know, really respects the, the other person who's involved in this process, who's coming forward with this information uh, and really kind of allows everybody to understand what I think most people in society think is the law that you have to have consent. Uh, and I think if, if that was clear to, to everybody, hey, if you didn't have consent, uh, that we would see more people come forward because we know uh, that sexual assaults are tremendously underreported. They are tremendously underreported on college campuses. Mm -hmm. And anything that we can do to increase those numbers is ultimately going to lead to more criminal prosecutions. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how, you know, how much of the chilling effect um, that prevents reporting comes from, you know, our, the state of our statute. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, and uh, now I want to ask you more about um, domestic violence. Um, uh, and I just heard this statistic a few weeks ago that during the pandemic, uh, the number of deaths at the hands of intimate partners uh, almost doubled. Uh, in Indiana. Um, so I don't know, do you, do you see those cases? Do you see twice as many uh, criminal cases? 
Well, it wasn't twice as many, but it, you know, dur during the pandemic, we looked at our numbers very closely in terms of what types of cases are we continuing to prosecute. And unfortunately, one of the areas where we did see an increase was domestic violence cases. Uh, and we also saw an increase in terms of what the lethality of those cases looked like or the level of violence that was involved in those cases. Um, and you know, during the pandemic, it was really difficult on a lot of people for economic reasons, for everybody being in the house. Uh, there's a lot of things, not people not having access to resources. And so there's a lot of things that really came together and created this perfect storm where we just saw this uh, increase in domestic violence cases across the board. And, you know, a lot of people who had access to resources, those resources were cut off like that. Uh, and a lot of people who were working, they lost their jobs like that. And, you know, we eventually kind of got more people back into the re uh, workforce and we figured out a better way to provide resources to people. But the spigot was turned off really quickly for a lot of people in terms of their jobs or their resource opportunities. And, you know, there's no question that that contributed to the increase in domestic violence cases that we saw here in, in Marion County. And it's also unfortunate that that was something that was consistent across the country. Um, and, and so as we kind of come out of the pandemic and recalibrate, uh, I hope everybody's number one recognizes the, the issue of domestic violence, but also uh, recognizes the importance that community has to each and every single one of us. Because one of the things that the pandemic did is, you know, we also saw the number of child abuse cases decrease, not because there are fewer cases, but oh. just because kids weren't in school, kids weren't in extracurricular activities where teachers maybe would have noticed a bruise or noticed a kid acting differently. You know, the types of things that we would, uh, that usually lead us to a criminal prosecution. And so I think that sense of community really is important to hopefully, you know, everyone out there, and we all understand the importance of it to offer support to our domestic violence victims, but also be in a position to help out our kids who don't necessarily have the ability to contact law enforcement. And a lot of people were isolated during the pandemic. Uh, which is always grounds for someone to be a victim of child abuse or domestic violence. And so this sense of community, we can't lose that. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're all doing a good job of checking on our neighbors and make sure everybody's okay. Mm -hmm. But no action from the state legislature on that issue. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, we face a lot of challenges in, in our state and in our community. And we're more concerned about, uh, you know, what's, textbooks and what people are being taught and who can, you know, should school races be partisan? I mean, the, the, the issues that, you know, ultimately are not going to save anyone's life and, and the issues that aren't necessarily going to improve anybody's quality of life, but we've uh, spilled a lot of ink and wasted a lot of time discussing the, those topics. Uh, not everything can be a priority. And I would like to think that domestic violence is a top priority for a lot of people, uh, but we don't necessarily see that reflected in the legislation that that's being proposed. Right. All right. All right. Moving on. Uh, anyway. Okay. So, and I, so, uh, so as to domestic violence, you know, um, one of the laws that, you know, apparently some legislature did at some point uh, to say, oh, okay, we got you um, is the red flag law. So, um, uh, and, and you'll have to help me probably with this, but this is, you know, the law that says that if someone alleges that, uh, you know, a domestic partner or somebody in the household uh, is a danger to themselves uh, or others, and they have guns, um, those guns can be removed from the house. So does the, does the person also have to be charged with a crime uh, to, to remove the guns or no? No, so I mean, the statute really gives law enforcement to respond to the scene and, and to remove those firearms from that person at, at that particular moment in time. They now have the, the authority and the ability to do that. 
you know, I think one of the, 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 the problems that we have right now is people see it as a gun control law and it's not. Uh, the Indian legislature is not going to do anything to restrict or inhibit gun rights. In fact, they're doing the exact opposite. They just repealed, they just want to get rid of the, the handgun license, uh, which is a very minimal, uh, you know, very minimal requirement for people to, to uh, possess a handgun in public loaded. Uh, they, they even think that's a bad idea. So, you know, this idea that anybody in the Indian legislature is going to vote for and be in favor of a gun control law is, is simply not accurate. And, you know, one of the issues that we have here is if you want to get your hands on a gun in the state of Indiana, and in particular Marion County, it's really easy to do so. Uh, you can look online really quickly and buy a gun and there's absolutely no restriction pay, placed on that purchase. There's no background check. There's no nothing. Uh, you can buy it from a friend, a neighbor. There's all these resources. You can go to a gun show. There's all these resources and tools to get handguns so quickly and there's nothing done to... Uh, restrict the, the the sale and transfer of those firearms, which is why we see so many cases with uh, people, you know, who have guns that that shouldn't have have those firearms in the first place. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it's it's one of the great challenges that we have, and and the fact that there's a good chance that the handgun licensing requirement is going to be repealed uh, is devastating to Marion County. You know, right now we have 1,300 handgun without a license cases currently pending. That represents 13 hand, 1,300 handguns that were taken off the street, 1,300 handguns that we've been able to examine and now linked to other crimes and mount successful prosecutions. Uh, but that's all being taken away by the Indiana legislature. Jeez. So this, so the red flag law is so if they take the, so if the, you know if you we have this situation, ask the sheriff or police officer come to the house, take the guns. They take the guns. So then that person, I mean, literally, as you say, can just walk out the door and, you know, get another gun, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, so there's nothing to stop them from getting a gun anyway. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the criticisms that, that we've made or, or, you know, tried to raise the, the level of awareness about, you know, when, when one of these cases is pending, uh, there's nothing restricting that person's ability to purchase a firearm anywhere. And it's really easy to get a gun. Uh, that's, that's just the reality. And, and, you know, no one seems interested in saying, you know what, we probably don't need to make it so easy to sell guns over the internet. We probably don't need to make it to sell so easy to sell guns at gun shows. Uh, and there's no background check and there's nothing to, to see. Is this person a felon? Is this person someone we want to have with a gun? That's never even discussed. We never even have a conversation about that in, in Indiana. And, and that's one of the real challenges that we have when we try to deal with violent crime because nobody has a problem getting a hold of a firearm. Yeah, yeah, kids included. Yes. So so you would have so if they so if they took the guns, then then that would have to be followed with a prosecution or a case to uh, to determine that that person should not be able to get a gun legally? Is that how that works? No, I wish that's how it worked. Oh. The, the way it works, the only thing that happens is there's that, that person is declared a, a dangerous person. Uh, and, you know, that would restrict their ability to purchase a firearm from a federally licensed firearm dealer. Um, and, but if you are anyone else selling a firearm, there's, there's, no, there's no background check. There's nothing involved to say, hey, we're in a position now where you can't have access to, to a firearm. And so, you know, just so people understand, if you are charged with a felony in the state of Indiana, you are federally prohibited from purchasing a firearm. Uh, I hate to be the one to break this to you, 
most of those individuals end up with guns in Marion County and most of those individuals commit crimes, unfortunately, with those guns because there's no restriction on their ability to have access to those firearms. And so if we want to talk about meaningful gun, gun control, let's have a meaningful, common sense, reasonable solutions to these challenges. Uh, but, you know, instead we're going the other way and repealing what few restrictions we have. Well, and I think, you know, what really kind of infuriates me is that this is the law that um, people point to saying, see, you know, if, you've, if you're afraid of someone in your house with guns, there's, you know, there's this law that's going to help you. But it's not. It's a complete fallacy. And so um, I, guess I, I guess I wonder why people don't just repeal it. I mean, it, it's just irritating that people are holding it out there as if it's, it, it will keep somebody safe when it absolutely will not. Yeah, people like the idea of it, but then the actual enforcement and legislative intent are, are completely different. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, all right. I want to, I want to get to a, a more pleasant topic. <laughs> um, I want to talk about, um, I call it the Innocence Project, and I'm not sure if that's what you're calling it. That's the one I understand the national, uh, who was, it was uh, Dershowitz, who turned out to be an interesting fellow in the end, but um, started this uh, great program to investigate cases, uh, uh, convictions that were probably not correct. Um, and so tell me about your program like that. Yeah, so we started what's called a Conviction Integrity Review Unit. Uh, we're the first prosecutor's office in the entire state of Indiana to launch this unit. Uh, and again, I have to give credit to our city county council who is willing to, to fund this, this initiative. And, you know, it really started from conversations that I had with the community. And when I went out into the community and talked to folks, you know, one of the things people told me is, uh, you've been very transparent, willing to acknowledge that the criminal justice system isn't perfect, that it has, you know, its flaws and that it has, unfortunately, uh, there are elements of systematic racism that exist in our criminal justice system that have disproportionately impacted people of color. And, and we're trying to make changes and steps to correct those things. Uh, but our obligation is not only to look forward, but to look backward. And, and the community was, was constantly talking to me about that issue. And that's why we wanted to make sure that we formed this unit so that people will have confidence that the convictions that come out of Marion County are based on the law and the facts and applying the law to those facts and nothing else. And, and so we're very proud of the fact that we have this unit. Uh, we've uh, gone out and tried to be aggressive in terms of letting people know that we are open for business uh, and in the process of, of evaluating uh, these types of cases. Uh, because it's incredibly important to me that everybody understands that we're doing everything that we can uh, to look into these and make sure that we got the right person. Because the only person who benefits from a wrongful conviction is the person who actually did it. And I like to think it's a pretty uncontroversial proposition that uh, we don't want innocent people in jail or prison. And, and so uh, this unit is designed to hopefully remedy those past wrongs and uncover uh, any issues that may exist in our criminal justice system, and hopefully that gives people confidence uh, when, when we talk about what we're working on. So how does that program work? Do, do, does someone, a family of someone who's been convicted, uh, you know, appeal to you or your office and ask for a review of the case? Absolutely. And, and so it, it just come from a variety of sources. It can come from our friends in the faith-based community. It can come from a family member. A lot of times attorneys, defense attorneys who have worked on cases, who are picked up cases, have reached out to us and say, hey, you need to take a look at this. I'm familiar with, with this case. This is something you need to, to take a look at. 
uh, you know, we went directly to people uh, who are in the Department of Correction just to let them know about the, the program and make sure that they knew. You know, I want people, we, we want this to be a robust program where we are evaluating as many cases as, as possible uh, to, to make sure that, you know, we, uh, the correct finding was, was made. Um, and, and so that's why we've made the investment that we've made, which we could not have done without uh, our, our city county council, which we're grateful for. And we think it's going to have an ultimately a, a positive impact on the community. I think it's great. And I'm sure that this is a pretty expensive endeavor. Um, so, you know, we, we have two full-time attorneys and two support staff members who, who work on this. Uh, and, and we're one of the, this is one of the few areas where I say, give me as many cases as you got. You know, we want to make sure that we're finding uh, any case that's out there. Uh, and we've been very aggressive in terms of, you know, hopefully being transparent about what the goals are and, and but then also making it as, as accessible as possible for people so they can hopefully uh, participate in the program if, if they think uh, their case deserves a review. That's awesome. And so um, have any cases been overturned? I don't necessarily know if I'd use the word overturned at this point, but we have agreed to some sentence modifications. There's been a couple oh. of cases where we have looked at the cases and, and we're concerned about the validity of the conviction. Uh, and so we have made the decision to modify people's sentences and release those individuals uh, from custody. There's a couple of cases right now that we're working on uh, to make sure that we're in a position when we come before the court and ultimately say, hey, we think this needs this conviction needs to be set aside. You know, we've done everything that we can to, to hopefully reach the, the appropriate conclusion. Uh, but there are definitely a couple of cases that jumped out at us that we felt like we had to act immediately as we went through that investigative process. Uh, and so we did uh, agree to a modification of, of sentence. Oh, well, that's a, that's a, I think that's a really good approach. I mean, very practical. <laughs> we, we try to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right. So um, you are up for election again in 2022. And um, I wonder if you have, uh, you know, some ideas for uh, the future uh, in, in your next term. Uh, you know, do you have more more big plans? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for, you know, the biggest challenge we face is the issue of violent crime. And, you know, what's the best way to approach that? I feel very fortunate. I'm, by, by trade, I'm a deputy prosecutor, uh, and, and I kind of made my name in the office trying homicide cases. So I know what that experience is like. And we have to be in a position to hold people accountable uh, when they commit violent acts. And, and under my leadership, uh, we've had one of our highest conviction rates ever on homicide cases, which, which is very encouraging. Uh, but I also know we can't just incarcerate incarcerate our way out of this problem. There has to be another side to this and we have to do things to help build trust in the community. So we get people uh, to not only come forward with information, we have criminal cases, but also just to put them in a better position to be successful moving forward. And so that's why we've been so aggressive on our initiatives as it relates to expungements, helping people get criminal uh, convictions taken off their record so they're not unemployed or underemployed. We have a terrible issue of housing discrimination here in Marion County where people just won't rent to felons. Uh, so helping those individuals get housing, helping those individuals get jobs, and then also doing everything we can to help people get their driver's licenses reinstated. Uh, there are too many good people in our community who get pulled over. They don't have uh, the money to pay the ticket, then their license gets suspended and it kind of snowballs from there. Right. Uh, they have zero impact on public safety, but yet we're criminalizing them every time they go to work, every time they go to church, every time they pick up their kids from school. And so we work really hard to set aside those tickets to forgive fees, to get those people, uh, their driver's license valid, uh, again, because I think it builds trust in the community, but it's also the right thing to do to make sure that we're getting people working. Uh, it's the one thing that I know will keep people out of the criminal justice system is if they have a career. 
If you get people working, we do not see them involved in violent crime. And so that's where we're gonna focus our efforts in, in terms of trying to hopefully provide as many economic opportunities as possible to people. Uh, but you know, when we do encounter people who commit violent acts, we're gonna be there to make sure we can hold them accountable. Yeah, I think um, you know people like you and I. Well, you maybe you're on the in the front line on this, but don't realize uh, how significantly people's lives are upended um, for getting uh, pulled over. And you know, so maybe they had a ticket, didn't pay it, lost their license. Now they've pulled. Now they're pulled over and they're you know arrested for driving without a license, um, and uh, or for you know marijuana, whatever, and nonviolent issues, and they're in jail. Uh, and, you know, they've lost their job now, um, you know, the family uh, who relied on that income now doesn't have that income. So now the housing is at risk for the family. Uh, it's just it's just such a spiraling um, it's, uh, impact um, for low-income families who have this. I mean, just imagine if, uh, you know, you or I were suddenly, you know, sucked out of reality and put in a box uh, and all the people around us who relied on us uh, no longer had that benefit. And, uh, and how impactful and long lasting uh, that consequence would be to your life. And of course, the lives of the children who are you know, now in poverty. So, um, it, and I think it's hard for people to really appreciate that if you're not really on the front lines. So I think that um, that's an important, important focus for you. And I just, I, uh, I think it's important to really make clear how how impactful, you know, being arrested and put in jail uh, and not being able to make bail is on low-income people and, and the, um, the, the sustainability of families uh, in low-income neighborhoods. So, all right, great. Other big plans? No, uh, it would, and just to piggyback on what you said there, but and that's why I think the summons bill is so important. You know, so many of our people who end up in the criminal justice system are, are hourly employees. And so if you don't show up, you don't get paid. And if you don't call in, you usually lose their job. Yeah. And so if you get arrested on a low level charge, not only do you spend the night in jail, maybe you don't have the money to bail out, maybe you do. But when you get out of jail, oftentimes your family doesn't know where you were for the last 36 hours, which is really nerve wracking. And you've lost your job. And so yeah. something as small as marijuana has now literally cost you your job. You don't have money. Now you fall behind on rent and all these cascading problems come down on yeah. something that really has zero impact on public safety. And so we just need to be smarter in our approach of how we treat people and the people who are most the most vulnerable members of our community, the people who have the smallest margin of error, we often penalize the most. And we just have to get away from that mindset. Yeah, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a, a bully culture, which is unfortunate. Um, so, and I always I like to put in there uh, a, a little plug for Joe Biden for making empathy a uh, you know an acceptable <laughs> acceptable value. Yes, uh, one we I, should appreciate. Yeah, you know that you know that's okay. It's, empathy is okay. <laughs> so, all right, great. I think I've hit almost all of my my list items. So I appreciate that. And so, um, so Ryan Mears, uh, Marion County prosecutor and candidate for uh, re-election. This will be your second term. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Great. Great. Um, well, I wish you all the luck in the world. And I would love to ask you for some parting words of wisdom before we leave. Well, just just want to thank everybody for this opportunity. I love the podcast. I love all the work that, that you do, uh, not only in your own community, but around the state. Uh, long time admirer. You've had a very distinguished group of guests. And I'm, I'm very honored that I get to be a part of it. So, oh, so thank you. I appreciate the, the opportunity and I look forward to seeing everybody on the campaign trail.
That's great. Well, you are certainly um, worthy of, uh, you know, of being on here, for God's sake. Um, you've done such really great work. I've been a longtime admirer of yours as well. So I'm really happy to be able to chat with you finally. So, all right. Well, good luck. And um, yes, and you will be seeing lots of people on the campaign trail, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.